I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Anna Lutfi, a barrister, that is for overseas viewers, a legal advocate at Clark's Room, who's been practicing in that capacity since 2019. Dr. Lutfi has an academic legal background, which we will get into in a moment, but she has sprung to public notice and was featured recently on UK Column News. The link to that will be in the show notes under this upload, together with the other material, uh, when she addressed a meeting in a side room of the Palace of Westminster, Britain's Parliament, very recently, uh, on the unlawfulness, as she sees it, of PSHE education in schools. PSHE providers are increasingly obsessed with engaging school children in discussions about sexual arousal, sexual stimulation, sexual pleasure, touching and being touched. They are showing kids graphic sexual images that are designed clearly to excite and titillate. The Bad Law Project is currently engaged in consultations with criminal legal specialists as to whether some of these materials meet the NSPCC's definition of non-contact child sex abuse and whether PSHE lessons as taught may be criminal offences under the Sexual Offences Act 2003. And so... And so, and I think this is what I really want to hammer home today, we are today putting schools, educational authorities and PSHE providers on notice, here and now, that there is strict liability for sexual offences committed against a child. And we say that PSHE activities conducted in the guise of robust sex education do meet the criminal threshold, particularly in respect of teaching children how to masturbate. We'll have to get into the details uh, as time goes on in the interview. But first of all, Anna, you're very welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very grateful. We'd better start by de defining this acronym PSHE, uh, because our viewers are aware that in Wales, another acronym is used, RSE. Uh, and even though England and Wales is a single jurisdiction in which you're accredited for the bar, Wales in educational matters seems to have carved off and become a, a separate jurisdiction. Much of what you're saying will be England specific, but the acronym PSHE is something that's becoming uh, of widespread note. What's the philosophy behind it and what does the acronym stand for? Well, thank you for a really excellent starting question, because without those sorts of um, opening questions, a lot of following discussion can be very muddled for people. Um, and muddled for me, let me be very clear, I am in no position of authority or expertise when it comes to uh, the ubiquitous use of acronyms, both in our legal culture and in general policy uh, that's found across the public and private sectors. But we do, we do see over the last, well, shall we say decade and a half, the rise of the acronym, uh, if acronym is the correct term. I mean, the ones I like to, to, to refer people to are LGBTQIA+, um, which is obviously subject to arbitrary transformations and additions without any consultation, whatever. Uh, BAME, which was temporarily popular at one point in, in terms of public policy. So I think that stands for black and minority ethnic, although I've seen um, you know, uh, reputable uh, public bodies use different um, uh, words to, 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 to fill that acronym. And then of course we have, for example, RSE, which stands for Relationships and Sex Education, and PSHE, which is often confused because you will hear it referred to as personal, social and health education, 
but I understand that the correct um, uh, the correct uh, um, uh, rendition of PSHE is personal social health and economic education. And the economic is perhaps more significant than people might think. My understanding of this acronym, having delved a little bit into the history, which I, I chronicle, I hope in an accessible and easy to read uh, way in our report, Reclaim Education, the case against PSHE, uh, where I have an introductory section on the history, is that there was something developed in the United States um, around the 1960s, late 1960s, early 1970s. It started to come into uh, popular usage within education um, uh, consultancy and um, policy uh, sector expertise. And this was uh, floated initially with something called the whole child approach. I don't know if you're familiar with the whole child approach. But... I'm getting general vibes here of something that was uh, controversial in the early 80s in America. I think actually that Charlotte Thompson Isobit uh, was onto this when she was uh, talking about values clarification uh, being trialed in some US states and counties back then. Uh, but more generally, anyone who was involved in education uh, about 30, 40 years ago will remember that this idea came of what was often called holistic teaching and yes. uh, addressing the child's feelings. Feelings uh, bubble up to the surface more every decade as this goes on, don't they? Yes, that's a really good uh, word, holistic, which obviously sounds like a nice word for all of us. I mean, who, 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 who can uh, oppose a holistic approach to anything from medicine to, uh, you know, to, uh, uh, to any aspect of public policy, really. But, the, but what's interesting about holistic in this context is the whole child approach um, sees the child in its entire context. That is to say, the child is not treated as an individual that comes to school and therefore is subject to uh, the school rules um, as an individual who has entered the school premises and is therefore um, like anybody else, uh, you know, part of that school regime. Uh, because, because what happens when you take that approach, which is against the whole child approach, is that when the child goes home, um, that that would be the end of the matter as far as the school jurisdiction is concerned. But what the whole child approach uh, does, and I I see the logic of it. I don't uh, necessarily um, criti criticize the uh, intentions behind developing this approach. Is that where a child comes to school uh, visibly uh, neglected, um, whether it's to do with their personal hygiene or symptoms uh, that indicate a history of, of violence, domestic violence or sexual abuse or physical abuse, where there is uh, patent nutritional issues, you know, that the child is not eating or sleeping, or the child is disturbed in any, any which way, which might be related to their home background or their family background. And this, this idea was developed out of um, a, a particular school in, I believe, New York State, which was predominantly African-American students, where there were some children who were coming from what we would call today in an you know, uncontroversial way, broken homes. Uh, there was a, a, a psychological study done um, of the conditions that such children were coming to school with and what could be done about it. And this, this particular school was floated as an ideal case study for developing in an academic context what became known as the whole child approach. Now, my issue with that, and I have spoken about this elsewhere, is that over the course of time, um, 
and, and, and assisted by various foundations who pumped huge amounts of money into the whole child approach as a necessary educational program to be developed and applied across the sector in the United States and then elsewhere is that it takes the, the seriously dysfunctional child or the, or the child from a seriously dysfunctional family as the paradigmatic child, whereby the school in collaboration with external stakeholders, again, generously funded by uh, various foundations and, and with state uh, taxpayers' money, um, the, the, the vision of the child is that the child will, will automatically, by default, need support. And what happens over time is that this philosophy becomes so ingrained and so um, part of the core that it, it, it renders the parents and the family automatically dysfunctional and therefore not necessarily the best partners with the school. And my concern is over time, uh, and, and as this philosophy and ethos has been developed in the United Kingdom since the 1970s, uh, in, 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 in essence imported from the United States, my concern is that we have now found ourselves in a situation where we take for granted the state, assisted by the third sector, as the uh, dominant authority on what children need in all circumstances at all ages, and that there is also um, a sort of residual uh, implicit philosophy that the parents can't really be relied on or trusted to uh, develop um, any uh, potential intervention with a child that has certain needs because the, chi because the children are assumed to be, um, you know, uh, fundamentally disadvantaged by the fact of having parents because parents are associated culturally with with dysfunction so if a child has issues it is because the parents have failed and we don't see within this ethos um, any sort of valorization of children uh, and I would say that this is in essence this is this is the majority of children we don't see any valorization of the of the incredible health uh, emotionally and physically of most children precisely because they are cared for. They're cared for by people who get them up in the morning, feed them, send them to school, love them unconditionally, uh, worry about them, talk to them, and not just mothers and fathers, but also grandparents, um, family friends, uncles, aunts, and that will be obviously specific to uh, individual communities and how they organize themselves. But I mean, the extended family, is still, even where you have a single mother-headed household, extended families are really, really important for children um, to flourish. And most children do grow up, not just with mum, but even if dad's gone or mum and dad are divorced, with a whole range of, of caring adults who simply are invested in the child because they love them. And that particular angle on child um, development is totally excluded from the whole child approach because there is an assumption that there is no love and love is not really val val valued in GDP, GDP terms. Um, it has no um, uh, metric by which it can be um, quantitatively assessed in statistical studies. All the metrics that they care about is whether the child you know, is functioning properly in a certain way. And that is to be assessed by the school, by the state, by the by the third sector who is uh, appointed by the state as the appropriate expert to assess this and this industry if you like has been funded 
exponentially over the years, but initially by the Rockefeller Foundation, millions and millions of dollars uh, to create now a kind of gaslighting program where parents simply feel that their job is to um, uh, basically provide the infrastructure for a child so that the child can go home somewhere after school ends, but the, but the, but the, but it stops with that. And after that point where the child has somewhere to sleep, um, any aspect of the child's uh, spiritual, cultural, emotional, physical well-being is is solely the responsibility of the state, with the state as the sole authority. And 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 this is an undermining of of the private sphere in a way that I think is wholly unique in history. And we we can talk about authoritarian regimes and how they've traditionally uh, chosen to attack the family, but this is a very a subtle devaluation, which looks almost reasonable on the face of it. A subtle devaluation of the family, which I think will have repercussions, which I don't think anyone has predicted what those repercussions are, but the backlash, I believe, is starting to uh, make itself known. And, and for me, PSHE, is, the, is, is what we in the UK now lend the name to that philosophy, which says the business of life, what, what is a good life? How do you form relationships? Um, what are the right things to think? What are the best behaviors? What, are, what is the progressive way of living in the world as opposed to a regressive or a, or, or a not um, particularly approved way? Those sorts of areas which have nothing to do with the traditional educational curriculum. They are, they are solely the prerogative of the private sphere, which is what all liberal democracies say and which is why they have protections for the private sphere. Uh, what just what John Stuart Mill called the good life, you know, that the, the function of the state is to is to ensure justice, which is that each individual can pursue their own version of the good life. And that good life is the private sphere. And a Muslim family's version of the good life will be different from an Orthodox Jewish family's version, from a secular humanist version, from a middle class aspirational model to a, an aristocratic, whatever you, however you want to classify people. Those are versions of the good life. And those versions of the good life are being taken now but over by the PSHE model, whereby we say the good life is taught. And it's taught according to what we now call, you know, various EDI-driven uh, uh, policy directives and, and social justice narratives, where it's very clear that there is no debate and no differentiation between what the good life is. And children who encounter the good life at school and a different good life at home will be told by the school that the good life that you're learning at home is simply wrong and you shouldn't be um, subjected to this indoctrination by your parents. But in fact, it is the school that is overstepping and it is the school that is um, indoctrinating. And that, that that's at the heart of the work that I'm trying to do at the moment. The passion that you uh, attest to there and the depth of experience is really crucial. And uh, lest some people think that you are scaremongering, the jurisdiction of Scotland uh, is usually ahead on these matters since devolution and has even tighter lines back to the US tax exempt foundations, as my colleague David Scott has been pointing out for years. And the incarnation that this uh, policy vector took in Scotland, it's still there in policy, although it's been overturned by the UK Supreme Court, was appointing a so-called named person, usually a oh, school yes. teacher, to every child in the jurisdiction. Um, and yes, highlights of that. Google that. Everyone should Google the named person in Scotland in order to understand what I just 
said at, at length, because that will summarise the issue for them perfectly. And particularly the no two named person or no number two NP uh, campaign, which David Scott was closely allied with. And the, the highlights of that include a Scottish minister who was in charge of the policy at the time, Eileen Campbell, uh, famously becoming nicknamed Eileen also Campbell when she let slip that parents had no need to worry because after a named person had been appointed as the state guardian, parents would, quote, also have a role. She said literally, we recognise that parents also have a role in, uh, well, to complete the quotation and paraphrase uh, in your philosophical, more erudite terms, in determining the good life. By the way, that's canonised in this unique constitutional arrangement we have here in the Netherlands. Um, a century ago, just over, the Dutch constitution brought in its article 23, which without using the term the good life, which goes back to Greek philosophy, specifically said, parents have different philosophical, religious and moral convictions, and they will club together to form a school board, and the taxpayer is at their service, the di diametric opposite of what's now coming in. And another metaphor which was boiled down to child children's level uh, was that uh, a briefing to the Scottish Youth Parliament uh, by the uh, people adumbrating this policy uh, described the policy in, in such terms that you are a delicate flower, there's the, the brittleness, that, uh, uh, the emotional fragility that Helen Joyce and others uh, authors are, are pointing towards, uh, and because you're such a delicate flower you need uh, a whole range, a whole team of gardeners in order to thrive. Of course your parents are there watering you, delivering the finished product, but this state person is the head gardener, and as you've outlined there, and behind them are the tax-exempt foundations, who stand to profit immensely, of course, from the diagnosed uh, fragility, because they provide the therapeutics and the diagnostics and the remedies, don't they? I could not say it better myself. I could not. I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> Families have a legal jurisdiction over their children, and no amount of wordplay about LGBTQIA plus rights changes that legal jurisdiction. It is parents... It, it, is, it, it, it is parents who care unconditionally about their children, not money-making schemers and not government. The state is a terrible parent. Go and look at any children's care home in any country at any period of history and see how children fare compared with growing up in a family that they can call their own. But the pedagogical philosophy practiced in PSHE today is, what do parents know? Why is this happening? Well, this is my opinion, my personal opinion. The removal of children from the influence of loving parents at younger and younger ages makes them more susceptible to influence from third parties who have vested interests in promoting ideas and lifestyles to children for political or financial gain, as well as, I must say, for sexual gratification. What else is the relentless promotion in PSHE of something called gender identity? The heinous proposition that a child can be born in the wrong body and can literally buy a new identity with assistance from the third sector. The child is asked to question constantly whether he or she feels okay and told you may not feel okay. Do you hate your body? Do you hate your adolescent body? Take another name, use a different pronoun, talk to a trusted adult about your intimate thoughts, not your parents. Don't trust or talk to your parents. Pause puberty, get skin grafts, take cross-sex hormones, bind your breasts, go online, seek out strangers who can help you and let us know if you want to talk. If you have a sexual experience you want to talk about, if you hate your body, talk to us.
talk to us. This is PSHE. How did you get into family law? You've practised in Central Europe, a very much more conservative part of the world, much more dominated by the Roman Catholic Church and the Calvinist Church in a particular country. You were Hungary. Um, famously now in the EU, the odd man out, because it's always wanting to promote family values and national sovereignty in areas of what's growing into EU competence, defying Luxembourg and Strasbourg rulings often. Uh, being castigated for that. You were there for some years as a legal academic, specialising in a very rare uh, branch of law, comparative family law, and I think also the freedom of expression cross-culturally. As I found personally, I've been looking around Western law schools, I wanted to see if I could get a, a, a mature postgraduate specialism in that. It's pretty much non-existent. So the kind of person and the knowledge I wish to gain, you you are it. So I don't need to pursue that route myself. What have you gleaned from all these years? Uh, in Central Europe, is is Hungary Hungarian society the uh, the backwards model that it's often being presented as? No, it, it, you know, look, I need to take my uh, take your um, your audience through a, a little a little sort of personal um, journey, if if I may, and I, I don't want to sound self indulgent, but it's very important um, because I was um, I had just. Uh, graduated, uh, you know, at the, at, the, at the bachelor's level from from Goldsmiths College, uh, and I, my my first degree was in uh, English and theatre, and I was very much a, a sort of self styled bohemian creative. Um, I was out on the gay scene. I wanted to be an actor. I, I I was in plays. I was interested in watching plays, directing plays, producing plays, all of this stuff. Um, and I met a Hungarian lady who I then uh, developed a relationship with. And this was um, in the context of my university uh, education in London. And I should also add that I come from a, a family of, of very, very, very committed um, left-wing activists. They are, love them dearly both, and they are both solid people, very, very uh, honest intellectuals and honest moral individuals and, and, and very good parents. Uh, but they were children of the 60s and, and they, you know, they learned their lessons through the sexual revolution, through the opposition to the Vietnam War. And, um, you know, they were, you know, proponents of, of decolonization and, and sovereignty for, for, for third world nations. They, 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 they raised me on a diet of, of institutional racism, uh, the, the role of the West in, 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 in destroying and demoralizing the rest of the world, the British Empire as the prime culp culprit, and the um, heteronormativity uh, of the family, the patriarchy, you know, the importance of feminism and gay liberation. These were these were the sorts of things that, that, that we were raised on, as, as, as you might call sort of in a secular Marxist household. And, uh, and off I went to do my, my, my bohemian uh, left-wing uh, rabble-rousing as, 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 an, as an undergraduate um, in the London of the 90s. That was the context in which I met a Hungarian lady who, who at that time had to go back to Hungary with me if I wanted to join her because at that time Hungary was not in the European Union and it was, was going to be problems for her to stay after her visa, her, her, her education visa expired. So that, that put me in, in Budapest very suddenly. And I want to say all this to people so that they understand how our lives work. They are not, I know people might say, oh, she's, you know, how, how curious she's that she's from Hungary or she spent time in Hungary. She probably, you know, has this ideological agenda that's driven by the Orban regime. 
Um, and, and just to be very clear, I don't practice in family law at, at this time. I'm a civil practitioner. I mainly, I mean, I mainly specialize in equality law and employment law. So I don't deal with family matters, but my PhD, as it turned out, uh, was in the history of family law. Why was that? Because when I was in Budapest, and, and, and be clear, I had no idea where I was. I mean, I went on a, an aeroplane and I landed in a place called Budapest. It could have been Bucharest, it could have been Sofia, it could have been Moscow. It, it meant nothing to me. I didn't know anything about it. And I landed a total ignoramus, had no knowledge of the history, no knowledge of the culture, no knowledge of the language. But I had a partner who was going to be my guide. And I ended up staying there for 15 years and in the course of it, trying to find what to do uh, with my sort of left wing background, I, I, I decided to apply for an MA at the Soros funded university called the Central European University in Budapest. And they accepted me uh, to, to study something called gender studies, which I, I again, I think your, your, your audience will, will, will be surprised to hear. Uh, but at that time, uh, gender studies in, in Budapest as in, in a university that still prided itself very much on embracing uh, liberal ideals and aspirations in the immediate aftermath of the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the emergence of countries, satellite, satellite states like Hungary, which were trying to shed uh, any vestige of the state socialist past, I can say, Soros funded or not Soros funded, the, C, the CEU, the Central European University, it, it, at the time that I, am, I, I attended, doing a, a very, what now sounds like a woke discipline like gender studies, was one of the most intellectually rigorous, robust and exciting places where freedom of expression reigned. People came from all sorts of places and countries in the world and they discussed things. People were very well read. They knew history, they knew politics, they knew languages, they were, very open, the, the, the professors were open and the students were open. And it couldn't be more different from the sort of campus cultures that we see across the West today. And I very much uh, benefited from that. And I was very grateful. And I was even more grateful when I was offered uh, the opportunity to do a PhD with the history department uh, on condition that I would go into the archives and find out what on earth was going on in the 19th century with respect to the civil rights of women in Hungary. And the only way I could do that was to look at the um, changing uh, civil legal structures uh, in Hungary in the 19th century, which I could only do uh, comparatively because I needed to look at you know, the, the Habsburg monarchy as the overarching legal framework and the various uh, divisions within the monarchy that were emerging in the late 19th century. Um, well, much earlier, actually, the early 19th century, really, uh, right up until 1918, when there was a, a, a communist revolution in, in Hungary. Um, and I also had to look at, for example, what was happening in Germany and the unification process there. And I had to look at the revolutionary, post-revolutionary French context and Napoleonic law and the legacy of that across the continent. And I had to look at English common law and, and, and the English uh, legal system uh, in respect of married women and unmarried women. Um, so engaging both um, statute, common law and the um, uh, equitable system of, of, of trusts. So I got this incredible, um, I would say, uh, very unusual comparative legal uh, education. And I wrote my dissertation in the end on, 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 on the concept of the family 
uh, in the 19th century and how it was constructed legally and what the costs and the benefits were for various actors who were invested in that debate, including, of course, the emerging women's movement that was arguing for things like custody of children and uh, authority over, over, over children and, and, and decision making within marriage and ability to manage property and so on and so forth. But Hungary was actually a much more liberal culture for women in the 19th century than in France or England, uh, for reasons that I won't bore the uh, readers, uh, the listeners with. But anyway, that all to say, that that was my journey into something called law. And then as the CEU increasingly took students from uh, primarily the United States, but other Western countries as well, we started to see the ingestion of a new understanding of the social sciences and the humanities where social justice narratives dominated. So you in a nutshell, the Hungarians at that uh, university were starting to learn that they'd been repressed. Yes, but there was also a sort of a new understanding of, 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 of oppression as something that identity groups, which were which had no meaning in the in, in, in the in the East European context. I mean, you know, this whole queer, the idea of queer people, queer groups, um, it wasn't LGBTQ at that point, it was queer. It was it was queer I, queer people and subalterns um, is a big phrase as well, isn't it? Subaltern, yes, and that was also very interesting for me because, of course, in the West, people were learning about um, post-colonial theory and the first and the third world and the relationships between what they called the metropole and the colony uh, from a from a from a from a perspective of wanting to critique the British Empire, but of course. Everybody that was my 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 colleague and my and my teacher, who was of either Bulgarian or Hungarian or Romanian or Russian extraction, um, would say, well, you know, that doesn't really apply when speaking about something called the Second World, about which Western Academy is 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 completely silent. And even when I returned to the UK and I thought, well, maybe I could teach in a university on. Uh, you know, East European history, I found that there was no real disciplines that tolerated uh, the region as a whole, it was either Russian studies or Slavic studies, in which case you had to be a Russian specialist or a, a speaker of Slavic languages, which I'm not. Um, but I couldn't, for example, be an, an expert in Habsburg history and know German and, and Hungarian and be snapped up by a university in the UK because, because the, the region itself has been more or less obliterated. Uh, and, and you have maybe Cold War studies, which are Russian centric, which look at the relationship of Russia and the Soviet Union to the West. But pre-Soviet pre Union, uh, East Europe is not, is not really an area of the world that is, is, is figured or factored into the Western imagination. And, and certainly for the purposes of of, of, of decrying empire and the role of empire, uh, most, most Western scholars, students and teachers alike will say, well, it's about the British, the French, and possibly, you know, other Portuguese, Spanish, and, and Italian empires, and how they how they basically demoralized and and exploited the third world, meaning meaning Africa and and and, and the East Indies and, and 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 India, South Asia. But they don't really have a grasp on what was going on in this other half of Europe, which was also a highly imperial structure with with imperial um, uh, acquisitions, uh, mostly contiguous acquisitions. So, you know, we don't have, for example, an overseas empire with with the Russian Empire, but we have a series of acquisitions which to this day are central to our political worldview. I mean, if you look at Ukraine and Russia's relationships, you have to go back a long way to understand what those relationships are. But most most Westerners, including highly educated and well 
first historians and study, students of empire will not have anything to say there because that area of the world has just been removed uh, from, 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 from discourse and from, from debate. Uh, unless you are from there or you have a very specific specialization. So, so I don't know what, what the point of all this is and how it connects to PSHE, save to say that um, I would say to all the listeners that sometimes it's really important to know that, that the weird and strange um, journey that a person takes to find themselves where they are. And when I returned to the UK after 15 years living in Hungary in a fairly, um, you know, I would say non-ideological environment because I could see that students were coming into the university in Budapest with, with, with ideologies that they've been bringing from the United States, particularly, um, where they wanted to talk about institutional racism and the transgender movement and how, you know, queer rights matter and trans rights matter. And, 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 and I, was, I was very troubled by it because it was so anti-intellectual. It just meant, it meant that conversations were reduced to slogans which had no there was no way you could delve into them and look at them and talk about what the issues were because the issues were just slogans and they were delivered and there was an increasing tension arising on campus I could see the development of something I didn't like so when I returned to the UK I thought I'm not going to do academia because nobody wants me because my my knowledge area is not wanted um, and I don't really want to be involved in this sort of campus culture of, of political hostility where intellectual discussion doesn't, doesn't feature. So what should I do? And that brings us to your question, <laughs> which is, you know, law, how did I get there? And it was simply a suggestion that friends and family made that you've done this PhD in the history of law, why not be a legal practitioner if you're thinking about changing your career? And so I did, I trained as a barrister and I, I was called in 2019 and I decided to try and build a specialization in um, free speech or freedom of expression because when I came back to the UK, not only was it very different from, from the environment that I'd been in, which was quite open and quite tolerant, you know, it was quite common to hear people with, with, with all sorts of views in Hungary battering it out either over a pub table or in a classroom. It was not a problem. Um, I came back to the UK and I saw a different place, not just a different place, by the way, from Hungary that I'd left, but a different place from the UK that I had grown up in, which was also a playful, irreverent and quite um, easygoing, let's say, when it came to different opinions. Uh, it, was a diff it was a different milieu. And when I came back to the UK, I thought, hang on, what's... Because I, I rarely visited the UK while I was away, so it was that sort of... There was no boiling frog for me. I was just thrust into a new country that didn't quite feel right. And I had to go through the motions of saying, oh, it's just nostalgia. You know, you were 20 when you left. So you look through, you're looking at the UK through rose-tinted spectacles and saying, oh, it was better than, you know, it's better when I was young and so on. But, but having talked to people who've lived in the UK for the whole of their lives, who are my age, I am convinced that something has happened uh, to make the place uh, less humorous, less playful, less irreverent and less open and less free society. And so for me, freedom of expression was, was going to be the way in which I addressed that as a lawyer, as an advocate. But I've also found myself increasingly thrust into the educational sector because of uh, what's happening to children uh, in our schools. So that probably helps you to move on from this rather tedious <laughs> uh, personal autobiography. <laughs> uh, we can't quite move on from all mentions of Hungary until we've dealt with George Lukács, because some of our viewers will be well aware uh, that in the dying embers of the First World War, the Hungarians set up a short-lived communist republic, 
or at yes. least one streamer of Hungarians did, as did a lot of other Central uh, Europeans at the time, some parts of Germany. Uh, Lukács, L-U-K-A-C-S, is notorious among students of cultural Marxism uh, for having been the first anywhere in the world to insist that young uh, early years of primary school children must be sexualized in their lessons and that this would bring about the revolution and bring them to hate bourgeoisie and overthrow the existing order. Famously, he did a bunk to Austria that wouldn't re-extradite him, otherwise he would have been hanged, I think, when uh, the Hungarian regime, certainly under Horty Miklos, had uh, got up to, uh, to speed. Without diving too much into Hungarian history uh, there, can you make any connections between that and what, had, what kind of coup had been pulled off in Britain while you were away? Wow. Well, <laughs> I have to say that the, the school stuff is fairly new to me still. I'm still I'm still um, trying to understand uh, everything that I'm seeing. What, what, what's been un unbelievable um, in the last few weeks and months is the incredible information that I've been getting from parents themselves. I mean, parents have been reaching out to me in droves and, and it's 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 it's. It's been overwhelming, but it's, it's also been very sort of informative. Um, but but to sort of put that information that parents are giving me, uh, and not just parents, lawyers, um, educational uh, researchers and specialists, and, and 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 think tank researchers as well. I've I've had a lot of people reaching out to me with information and sources, and and to put it in the context of what I've learned over the years about about what's transformed the United Kingdom, particularly in respect of 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 the role that sex plays, um, particularly uh, in, in respect of young people, uh, it is, it's not an easy question to answer, but I think we, ha we have to, as a society, as a critical thinking demographic, we need to start really asking ourselves how sexuality, childhood, and authoritarianism do function together. And, and I think Lukács is a very good place to start. In my report, I cite George Bernard Shaw. I don't know if, if your listeners would be interested in the quote, um, but it's quite a good one that I came across from an essay written in 1928 uh, called Socialism and Children, which I'd never heard of. It was published in the Intelligent Woman's Guide to Socialism, Capitalism, Sovietism and Fascism, which is a lovely uh, must read for anyone who's going on holiday. <laughs> so, so the idea is that if women read George Bernard Shaw, they will be almost as intelligent as him. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, this this quote um, starts with um, the, a description of parental rights as old Roman rights. Now, you'll know uh, very well, Alex, that in order to discredit something from a socialist perspective, one must call it old. And if that doesn't work, you must call it bourgeois. Um, but anyway, so parental rights are described as old Roman rights, um, and he says, in the case of young children, we have gone far in our interference with the old Roman rights of parents. For nine mortal years, the child is taken out of its parents' hands for most of the day, and thus made a state school child instead of a private family child. The records of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children are still sickening enough to show how necessary it is to protect children against their parents but he concedes the bad cases are scarce and show that it is now difficult for the worst sort of parent to evade for long the school attendance officer, the teacher and the police. You know, fast forward a century and you could just be mouthing what Barna Werner 
the Child Protection Agency in Norway say, whenever they're asked, why are you stealing children from loving homes? The knee-jerk is always, oh, but we have people who say that they were being abused as children and they say, why didn't you come and rescue me sooner? Uh, therefore, you have no criticism of anything we do. Yes, and what I find really curious about um, uh, Shaw's comment there is that the fact that um, sickening child abuse by parents is scarce is for him evidence that the state uh, is doing a good job of being the buffer zone and being the parent, um, you know, uh, in, 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 in the place of, of the parent, it's uh, the biological parent. Um, and he then goes on to say the social creed which I assume he by which I mean I assume he means socialism must be imposed on us when we are children, for it is like riding or reading music at sight. It can never become a second nature to those who try to learn it as adults. And the social creed to be really effective must be a second nature to us. It is quite easy to give people a second nature, however unnatural, if you catch them early enough. There is no belief, however grotesque and even villainous that cannot be made a part of human nature if it is inculcated in childhood and not contradicted in the child's hearing. Now, not contradicted in the child's hearing automatically places the parent at a somewhat disadvantage because if the child is to be corrected at home about something they've heard at school, then what, what is happening is the parent is, from Shaw's perspective, the parent is interfering with with the second nature of the child is is pulling the child back to its its nature and not allowing it to develop a second nature however grotesque and villainous to use Shaw's curious words so I think that those quotes show quite clearly that um you know uh, the early 20th century and we've got you know Leninism we've got uh, the, the eugenics and the Fabians in Britain, and we have all these sorts of um, uh, the birth control movement, the feminist, a nascent um, sort of second wave feminist movement arising, uh, which is going to pave the way for the sexual revolution of the second half of the century. There is clearly um, an ethos being developed uh, that children are um, to be inculcated in a second nature that, that, that ideally the parents will not be able or empowered to interfere with. And I think we need to ask ourselves as a society, how does sexuality play a role? How does sex education play a role in the inculcation of a second nature? And, and it, for me, I think we can get a little bit lost in the sex, sexual side of things, because when we talk about sex education, we tend to focus on the sort of um, the mechanics of of sexual acts and whether they're suitable or not for children to learn or understand. But there is the relationship side as well now, which has been put in. And that is equally, I think, to be uh, attended to because in the name of relationships education, you can put anything you like. Um, you, you're, not, you're not confined to the sort of, well, the birds and the bees, if you will, how children are made. Um, then, of course, the fact that there are, you know, different sexualities and some men like to do it with some men and some women live with other women and so on and so forth. You're not confined by those rather straight, um, if I may use that word, um, uh, renditions of sex as such. It's the relationship side that allows the state to start to inculcate um, an understanding of what life is all about from a very early age, from ages as young as four years old, you know, where it's not just about acts which obviously four-year-olds are not able to comprehend and I think most schools appreciate that but the idea that there is you know um 
to, to go back to your opening when you talked about the, the special the special flower, was it the um, brittle flower? Um, what, what relationships education does is very subtly inculcate in children from very young ages the idea that they are special. They have a unique identity and they will be invited to try and find a language from four to five years old upwards to find the language that describes their particular special uniqueness and they'll be given little bunting flags and they can put what's special about them on their bunting flag and they can wave it in the classroom and they can they can talk about the fact that they're brilliant um uh, they, they, they they're they unique there's nobody like them nobody else has what they have they, they they're asked to do things like compare you know compare your nose with another nose of somebody in the class and how is your nose so special and different from their nose but both of the noses are wonderful pshe let us be clear is not a real subject nobody knows what it actually consists of it is mandated by statute to be taught, but there is no agreement in the country as to what part of it is mandatory, the thing they call relationships, and what part of it parents can object to and withdraw their kids from, the thing they call sex. Government policies have, over the years, amalgamated relationships and sex education into a sticky blob and because schools don't know what it means or how to teach it, they throw their hands up in the air and pay companies posing as charities to teach it for them. Companies funded to a large extent by the taxpayer. Me, you, parents, the public, and none of us have any say in what goes on in PSHE lessons. And of course it sounds like a, you know, a, a simple exercise in building self-confidence and hoping that the child will learn to value themselves. And of course, some children may take it that way. I think a lot of children, even at five, might find that quite boring and patronizing. But, but the, um, the ethos underpinning it is that you're special. And I think we need to really address what is the function of telling a child in, incessantly that they're very special and unique. I think it has to do with the idea that they are not born to people and they are not of a place or of a community or of a society or of a culture or of a family where, where what makes them the, the person that they are is, is, is feeding in from the people around them. I think this is an exercise in alienation that you, are, you come to school and you learn who you are and that has nothing to do with who you were before you set out. So classic Marxism is really loose from its moorings now because uh, yeah. at its most uh, honest, it was striving for an end to alienation. And I have colleagues interpreting now for international organizations who tell me that they walked away from the, the Marxist project when they heard it said that uh, alienation explained even uh, paedophilia. And uh, you know, if, if we didn't have a, if we had a different kind of society, those with these desires would simply not have them anymore. And you know, they, they saw through that, but you've uh, set out the case now for a deliberate inculcation of alienation in the children. Now, perhaps the hinge here between the early 20th century, Shaw preaching the doctrine of in loco parentis to the intelligent woman, uh, by the way, in, in my time in boarding school, uh, only in the 90s, uh, in loco parentis was only used for boarding context. But I see in America now it's being trotted out for day schools as well, probably Britain soon. You get to the late 20th century where the state tells you how to spend your money and your time, hence the relationships and the, the economy. Maybe the hinge is the midpoint of the 20th century. Theodore Adorno, collaborating with Max Horkheimer, writes The Authoritarian Personality. And it's pretty obvious if you look at the, the, the context of the emerging cultural Marxist 
project at that point that he's scrabbling around trying to find a justification for tearing children away from the bosom of their families and saying well we had this rather violent and horrid first half of the century because fathers are a thing uh, if if the state's a father uh, then the children will be taught to want and desire other things also simone de beauvoir not long after that time uh, in in the first wave again perhaps with with less baggage than than the, those who came after her in her name defining perhaps second wave feminism uh, and she says one isn't born a woman one becomes one it's about performance and roles and that is feeding right through uh, to the, the, the trenching criticism we now have of what happens in gender reassignment clinics uh, yes. that one is invited to to perform one's gender uh, almost in drag but in, in a more seemly um, sophisticated way than before the drag is, is is the feelings that are expressed rather than the clothes that, that are put on yes although in defense of Simone de Beauvoir, Beauvoir would say that that phrase, which has become you know known in in relation to the the the, the, the postmodern uh, philosopher, so-called uh, Judith Butler, uh, she she used she relied heavily on that phrase. One is not born, one becomes a woman, to make the argument that there's no such thing as sex. Uh, and I think that is a rather um, illiterate reading of Simone de Beauvoir, and that's not what Simone de Beauvoir was talking about at all. Um, and uh, if, if, if any of your um, if any of your listeners are sort of you know critical of feminism, I, I do understand that. But I think it's important to flag, flag uh, feminism as a very 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 diverse set of debates and ideas, which has been um, probably one of the greatest intellectual traditions the West has ever known since the Enlightenment, because it 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 tackles everything. The minute a, um, you know a Kant comes out or a Rousseau comes out with some 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 general uh, understandings of the world. A a, a female uh, uh, um, um, uh, 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 savant, if I might say, uh, will come out and and tackle where women stand in that picture. So you have the, the classic one is Thomas Paine, the vindication of the rights of man, and Mary Wollstonecraft writes a yes. vindication of the rights of women. What a year later or something? Yes, and Mary Wollstonecraft is an excellent read and an excellent brain. And then you have, for example, the backs and backwards and forwards between you know John Stuart Mill and and his various uh, uh, f female uh, salon um, you know collegiates who, including Harriet Mill, of course, who were, who were trying to to. Um, assist in, in building a vision of the social contract that could take into account the fact that we are a dimorphic species. And then you have feminism across the board that is engaging, I think, robustly with Marxism and critiquing Marxism, engaging robustly with Freud and critiquing Freud and engaging robustly with, um, you know, uh, 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 all of the major um, economists of the 20th and uh, 20th century, like um, uh, Nozick and uh, um, uh, you know, the, the, who's the guy with the veil, the, the veil of ignorance, um, uh, I, I forget, but, but taking on all of these, um, you know, robust uh, men of letters and saying, you know, this is great, we love it, we read it, we, 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 we understand it, but we also want to understand how does it allow for a vision of the world where people have children, and people raise children, and some of those people who raise those children are raising those children because they gave birth to those children, that changes everything, and and feminism for me has been a robust intellectual exercise in trying to make sure that we don't just talk about the world of public affairs and work and 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 politics, uh, but we also look at the family and we look at reproduction and we look at it both economically, psychologically, emotionally. And I, I do worry sometimes that the conservative right 
um, wants to just eradicate that that intellectual tradition. And just just to say that I think Simone de Beauvoir, yes, she she was actually paving the way for a discussion of what we now call gender, uh, but that was not her intention. That was a that was a very dishonest move by a very dishonest lady called Je Judith Butler, who 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 used her own foolishness. Um, to render an intelligent woman foolish now in hindsight. And that, that's not fair. Simone de Beauvoir was many things, but a fool she was not. And, I, and Judith Butler's book, Gender Trouble, is illiterate nonsense. It's gobbledygook, it's mumbo jumbo, it's pseudoscience, it's pseudophilosophy. The same has been said about Lucie Rigaray, hasn't it? Another French yeah. feminist who followed in de Beauvoir's wake. Yes. I mean, they've basically just taken a, an observation that you know, what, what you aspire to be as a woman may not be defined solely by, um, you know, your, your childbearing capacity. And they've turned that into an argument that a, a two-year-old boy can be a girl. I, I mean, and, and the consequences of that are so horrendous uh, that for shame, actually, I mean, really for shame, she should be ashamed of herself that she couldn't see the, the consequences of her actions. But I feel that that's to do with her intelligence and not necessarily with her poor morality. Or that a four or five year old boy or girl can be a cat. I see there's a whole chapter in the case that you've uh, made, which will again be linked to uh, the show notes below this interview. Chapter seven is Catgate. Uh, some people may not have, might not have caught on to this furries trend, but there are now clips circulating of ever so sincere American parents saying, I think it's so discriminatory that I can't take my cat identifying uh, mm. four year old child to the vet. And the vet yeah. says I have a, a legal, moral and medical inability to help. Uh, it's well, so discriminatory. How have we got there? Well, I mean, when I saw that video, I, I wondered whether it was perhaps somebody doing a rather clever um, provocation. Um, I, you know, I, I always question, you know, what I say. However, there is obviously um, on in adult uh, fetish sites on online, and I'm, I'm not speaking from any position of authority, but this is obviously something I, I, I have been told about. But, but obviously that's going to be uh, an outcome of an increasingly alienated sexuality, which is manifest through addictions online. And you've got fetish culture now in its, it, it, the fetish is defined by limits. That is always how it's been defined. And you have to transgress the limits in order for the fetish to have the power that it has. Um, so, you do that through subcultures and secret furtive associations. So people with fetishes will, will gather in furtive sort of corners of places and say, I like this, do you like that? And then, then there'll be these um, back and forth conversations about, well, how far do we go? You know, if you've got an SM bondage club, there'll be safe words and so on. It's not a world I've ever been part of and it's not a world I want to be part of, but I, I, I do concede that this seems to be something, if we look at the works of the Marquis de Sade or, or even having read the, auto, the, the, the biography of, of C.S. Lewis, no less, uh, and his um, sadomasochistic fantasies when he was a young man, uh, which he wasn't sure what to do with, it seems to be something that people do entertain, um, and I don't know why. However, it's always been entertained within the, the, the framing of a, of a of a particular uh, section of a space, a designated space uh, that is not mainstream for good reason. What, what I think is happening now is we've lost any distinction between, uh, there's no, well, just as there's no private sphere anymore, there is no 
there's no boundaries anymore um, in respect of age, and there's no boundaries anymore in respect of predilection. And, uh, and if you have a predilection that you know is socially, the majority of people will, will frown upon it because they don't find it appealing or they don't find it morally acceptable. And they also see it as potentially threatening where there are young people around. Um, the tendency will be in a, in a healthy society for there to be a gathering of adults around the child and say to that person, go away. You are not practicing your predilection here. Go away. And particularly do it, mothers. Particularly mothers. And I think what was, what's happening now is the predilection has been released. You know, it's been given its, its wings to, to fly into schools and fly into parliament and fly into the street and fly into the shopping mall and fly into the, the swimming pool changing rooms. And it can manifest itself. knowing And into the places of worship and into places of worship and into places of work. And, and it can fly, and even a, um, a devout Muslim woman who is just doing her job at the, uh, you know, the office of the train station where she happens to work is said, uh, is told to wear a lanyard that, that, that worships and celebrates um, fetish culture. And, and her opinions and feelings about that are completely disregarded, which I think, you know, is one of the extraordinary features of our modern multicultural Britain is that um, in particular devout faith groups from BAME so-called backgrounds um, have been just told that they have to celebrate a fetishism that strikes at the heart of their worldview, including sex segregation of spaces at appropriate times and, and moments. So, so we're seeing this absolute liberation of the fetish, of the, of the sexual predilection into all areas of mainstream life. And of course, whereas traditionally somebody might have have said, hang on a minute, you can't do that here, or, or, or mothers might have gathered uh, around a child at, at a park and said, you know, you go away, you, you're not welcome in this playground, or, or children, you know, tell us if you, if, you see, if you see that man again, you must say. What we're seeing now is the conversion of the, of the, of the exhibitionist sexual fetishist um, into, a, into, a, into a sort of Christ figure uh, who is, who is, who is, who is uh, above all of us and must never be criticized and and actually any 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 expression of concern about the behavior of this fetishist is in fact a sign of the regression of the mother and the regression of the of the adult who seeks to to intervene so this is where we are it's a complete inversion of of, of what i think is healthy um, and it comes from uh, i think you know a, a sort of a, a, a sexual liberation ethos which has obviously taken um root on the internet particularly uh, where there is just no limit to what you can do. Now, if you if you have such a, an approach, uh, then then of course you're going to have people who say they're cats. Uh, I'm not sure what the cat thing is about, but I would also say that in a society where people are taught from a very early age to devalue the human being as a, as a, as a as a species, for example, by the, the idea that we're we're inherently damaging species, we 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 do nothing but breed uh, uh, unwanted people and um, our, our, our numerous um, presence on the planet is destructive uh, and we should be ashamed of ourselves and we're also have all these inbuilt guilts that we should be constantly um, upset about uh, and uh, we should know that we are worthless and, and nothing and there's nothing good about being human. I think you are going to also see um, a sort of philosophical um, management of that sometimes in young children even well then i'm not a human being um, we're seeing the golden thread here aren't we anna of uh 
a, a worldview that is so uh, revolutionary that it doesn't see people as possessing inherent worth. The whole uh, uh, common theme between all of your areas of law uh, is, of course, that people have individual worth. Uh, but now people are being told, well, if you watch what you say and what you think uh, and you let us lick you into shape, then you might possibly be somebody who's worth something. Yes. And it's questionable whether that is worth, actually. I mean, what is dignity? I, my, 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 um, my stepdaughter asked me about this yesterday. We are talking about self-respect and what does it mean? And, um, and I was talking to her about the sort of the drafting of the European Convention on Human Rights and the use of the, the reliance on the concept of human dignity, uh, which is not, a, I think, a secular concept, actually. But, but what does it mean? And we don't, we don't talk about it. We don't talk about what it means to have worth. We don't talk about what it means to have dignity. In fact, the entire human rights empire has grown precisely, I would say, on the idea that um, our human rights are precisely those rights not to have dignity. So you have the right to sell yourself in sex. Uh, you, you know, sex work is a human right. Uh, you have the right to uh, sterilize yourself. You have the right to mutilate yourself. You have the right. Um, to subject yourself to, um, you know, uh, the, the most um, demeaning uh, sexual positions um, as part of who you are, part of your liberation, as part of your human rights. But of course, whether that, make, whether that enhances your understanding of what it means to be human or not is not a conversation that we have, and it's not a conversation our society wants to have or at this point is capable of having unless unless we go into our salons like we're doing now and secretly whisper and keep the word going that the human being is inherently um, a worthy thing that it was born worthy and is not to be uh, corrupted and, um, and is not to be degraded by people who make money and get sexual gratification out of those acts of corruption and degradation. I think we just have to keep the, keep the word going. Um, Do you see stirrings in the church, maybe even in the Church of England, to have this conversation. I know that you're increasingly disenchanted by the leadership of the Church of England, who isn't, and what's happening in some parishes. Uh, but if that conversation isn't being started and maintained from the established churches, where else is it going to come from? I don't know. I'm very disillusioned with the Church of England. Um, it, you know, it, 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 it's inserted itself in such a way that it doesn't just make declarations from upon high. Um, it, it, it inserts itself into the very way in which uh, small local churches are, you know, funded. Uh, and it has managed to create what I think is a decadence that we haven't seen since before the Reformation, uh, and which was the reason for the Reformation, and a good reason for the Reformation, which is the idea that, you know, uh, we will have to take religion back into our own hands because the priestly class are corrupt, decadent, lazy, dishonest immoral, fatuous, and fat. Um, you know, that whole sort of critique of the priestly class, which, which also enabled in some respects the, the scientific enlightenment. Um, and the cleaning up of Rome's act in the counter-reformation. Uh, counter yes, 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 indeed. Yeah, indeed. So we're, we're at this point now where we have um, a, a sort of a priestly class, which in, in, in the Church of England, which I belong to, is... is, is you know, the bishops and what have you, but, but they, they, they've created this bizarre funding structure whereby there's plenty of money available 
to the priestly class within the church, but there's no money available, for example, for small churches who are trying, who are struggling to uh, mend a leaky roof or, um, you know. Brian Gerrish and I have written a whole piece uh, at length on this, on how the uh, the parish share uh, the contributions of individual congregations who at law and historically are independent, even in an, an Episcopal model, body like the Church of England. These are taken to the centre. They're put through the till in the bishop's headquarters at the diocese. They become central funds. They may be graciously dispersed back to the congregation locally to fix their leaky roof, but it's on the centre's terms. So they've, they've turned themselves into uh, an administrative hub that they never were meant to be historically. So we'll link that article um, at the okay, bottom yeah. of this. Very interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, then and then you get this situation where you go to church and you do not have a single moment of spiritual succor. There's no real prayer. Um, it, there's a speedy service. And, and I'm not saying this to, I, I understand the pressures on churches and the vicars. Um, some of the vicars are doing amazing job of holding it all together under incredible pressure but there is this cursory service and then we get down to business which is fundraising and um and the the, the practical um tasks that have to be done to maintain a building which is in you know in profound state of disrepair and and not long before it's eventually sold to it's not just the Church of England, though, is it? It's uh, yeah. people who might think I'm exempt. I'm at a low C of E congregation uh, or I'm in an evangelical free church. You will have noticed the um, inexorable rise of this idea of the faithful presence, which is shorthand for shutting your mouth about things that trouble your conscience and just being there and saying nothing. Uh, and from that sprout, I think we're, we're starting to see uh, established, sorry, non-established churches, free churches across the English-speaking world, also being told your job really, because your life is sorted in your middle class, uh, is to keep stumping up for our pet projects. Yes, very much so, and it's very, very difficult because at the end of the day, from a purely selfish uh, perspective, you know, I do, I do want if I'm if I'm going to go to church and have some quiet prayer and some reflection on the things I think I need to to address. Um, and, and I, I need to believe that God is present and I need to believe that the community that I'm, I'm with are engaged together in a, in, a, in a relationship with a God that they all believe in and, and trust. But if, if, if it just becomes another administrative um, chore whereby, you know, you have a busy week and then you've got another busy morning on Sunday with, with no spirituality really at all. Uh, or not a very convincing spirituality. It's almost like a spirituality that everyone's basically given up on and they're just going through the motions, the way that people go through the motions when they, uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the equivalent is. It's like some people when they go into the supermarket will always head for the dairy aisle first to get you know, their favorite yogurt and it just becomes a habit. You know, it, it's, not, it's not like they're going into the supermarket and saying, now I really must, um, you know, I, I must think about what I need tonight for tonight's meal. And I must, you know, go around the, the, the supermarket with this conscious process of, of choosing. I mean, I, that's a weird example, but I, I just, um, I feel like this, this going through the motions of just going into church and then having a discussion about fundraising to an already demoralized population that half the time doesn't even seem to care about God particularly. But, you know, and maybe it was ever thus, you know, who knows? I've, I've, I've not been a churchgoer for long and I'm not a churchgoer now. But um, but I do think that uh, the conditions are right for some sort of reformation. And my hope would be that it would be a reformation in, in the United Kingdom that would um, would not strictly be a religious reformation. I would like to see um, perhaps, um, you know, a, a sort of 
coming together of minds and thought and thoughts and actions which could translate um, both religious and non-religious communities of every of every hue. That that is a very um, utopian um, hope. But I I believe that we now are in a position in the country where so many people are starting to see that there's a there is a, a, a problem at the level of, of the state and the and the and the role that the state has over everyday life and including uh, the influence over the state from third sector organizations and international organizations. I think people do see that and knowing what I know of the human race, there will be creative and um, entertaining and, and, and thoroughly uh, marvelous uh, ways of tackling that through 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 religious and non-religious inspiration. Um, and so I'm you know I believe we're the time is right for a reformation of sorts and we're we're going to see it. Perhaps a reclamation, given that uh, one of your strong backers, I think the main strong back backer of the Bad Law Project, which is bringing this lawsuit against the Department for Education for the foreseeable harms of PSHE, uh, reclaim uh, as a party has got this notion of taking back what used to be ours. Yes, and people do, I think, it's one of the legacies, I think, of Marxism that you, you, you imagine the future by destroying the past. Hence the, the old Roman rights of parents that Bernard Shaw thought was important to, to eradicate altogether. So you have to name something as old in order to destroy it because the old is never worth preserving. And that is the essence of uh, revolutionary Marxism and all its manifestations in our current climate. But I mean, you can have a revolutionary movement, I think, um, that has a relationship with the past, um, whether it will be successful or not, because I mean, there is a vulnerability uh, to um, a revolutionary movement that um, does not want to destroy um, because destruction is always um, easy and it's, uh, it, it appeals to the most physically powerful sorts of people who are excitable and enjoy trashing things and destroying things. So when you appeal in a revolutionary manner to preservation, I think Ed, Edmund Burke has 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 touched on this in his writings that it's very difficult, and, and Roger Scruton too. Roger Scruton talks about the, the the difficulty of a sort of fervent revolutionary conservatism. It's it's it somehow doesn't lend itself to the the trashing of the current status quo and the and the and the banners and the you know leveling down of everything we've ever known and building a new society in the name of the new utopia. I mean, conservatism just works against that. So I don't quite know how we build a revolutionary conservatism or a revolutionary preservationism uh, where we take into account that things have have been and are good in our society and they've worked very well for many 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 millennia even uh, not just political arrangements um, such as democratic um, selection of representatives who are chosen by the community to be good representatives for their skills and their acumen and their wisdom and their respect that they hold in their society, but also things like knowledge about healing and um, people's wisdom about how to deal with um, unruly children. And, you know, there are all sorts of strate strategies that people have passed down from generation to generation that are worth keeping on and, and not dismissing out of hand just because they come from the past. Uh, but whether such a movement can be successful uh, is, 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 is a question. I always think of the ghost dance myself, which was a movement that spread across um, the American Indian plains from the Southwest, Pueblo areas in the 19th century, just as it seemed that, um, you know, the Indian wars were over and the lands had been 
completely lost to, to the native tribes and they were going to have to spend the rest of their lives on reservations um, subjected to government handouts, which, I mean, the more I think about that, the more I can't imagine a worse plight for a people that have, 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 have nurtured themselves uh, agriculturally hunting, gathering uh, through nomadism or through settled societies where they had incredibly robust political, cultural and spiritual structures to be then put on um, a confined piece of land and told that you can only live from handouts, uh, which is what was effectively done to the native people of the United States. And, and this movement sprung up called the Ghost Dance, which was basically um, a restoration movement calling for uh, the restoration of, of the status quo as it had been in primitive terms before the white man came. Well, you know, it wasn't a very successful movement. Um, however, it may have been more successful than we think, because I believe personally that the ghost, ghost dance movement may have, may have contr contributed in some small way to um, the uh, spiritualist interests of the middle classes in Europe. Um, once God had been taken away from them by Charles Darwin and the, um, the, the interest in, 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 in trying to define a spiritual relationship with the world post-God, post-Darwin. Uh, and, and, and I think maybe that is where we are. we are. We are, for the most part, many of us who are not comfortable with embracing um, a religious identity or a God, we, we, we still have a spiritual need for succor and for uh, you know, um, a legacy, a homeland, a, a past, a cultural inheritance, and these things are things we want to preserve. So that is spirituality, in my view, and we need a sort of um, a restoration of, of, of the spiritual human being uh, and the confidence of the human being to assert themselves spiritually and to do so by reclaiming, as you say, what, that, that which is good and that which has worked and that which is worth preserving, uh, rather than focusing solely on the destruction of that which we hate. So I think that doesn't, that's not the way that is, I think that is the Marxist way. And I think we've seen what that does historically. Yeah. Interesting that you mentioned the uh, American native uh, uprisings in that uh, frame, because one of the most uh, radical legal thinkers in American Protestantism in the 20th century was Rusas John Rush Dooney, who wrote a whole series on the Institute of Biblical Law, uh, a project nobody else would have dared undertake. And early in his career, he was a missionary in Nevada, and he was so disgusted at the welfareism being foisted on uh, the what we used to call the Red Indians there, uh, that he wrote a book, I think in the 1950s, called The American Indian, colon, A Standing Indictment Against Christianity and Statism in America. Oh, you might care to be. read that. I would like to read that very much. Yes, I'll put the Goodreads link in the show notes as well. I should read it. Yes. The yeah. um, time is, uh, alas, against us, so yeah. we're going to have to wrap up with a a brief question about New Zealand, which is more constitutionally significant than it seems, because uh, unlike Canada and Australia, it hasn't made any moves to patriate its constitution, uh, which the other two realms did in the 1980s. New Zealand is basically the UK transplanted. Its constitution is extremely similar, uh, and steered by the cabinet office. The one difference they have in this point is that they don't have what was called by its critics socialism in one clause. That's the Equality Act 2010, which is the, your bread and butter, <laughs> and which is thanks to the metric martyrs case and this 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 sleight of hand that was pulled that we had this uh, idea of a, a statute of constitutional significance, which was invented in court so that the government didn't have to admit it was it was uh, lying on other things. We've got this new arrangement that you have some some statutes in the UK. Uh, not so much in New Zealand, which outrank others. Uh, 
hold constitutional significance. The Equality Act is one of the absolute core of them. New Zealand doesn't have that, but it's trying to catch up and leapfrog, as the smaller jurisdictions in the Commonwealth often do, trying to get ahead of the mother country by um, enshrining in statute law gender identity or expression. I will link to this uh, interview Katrina Briggs's uh, blog on this. She blogs as a bold woman on Substack. No time to read the details, but uh, the explanatory note for the bill says we're not changing the already existing grounds. Uh, you can't discriminate on sex or sexual orientation, but all we're doing is adding more provisions to, quote, better encompass people in communities, note that people aren't individuals here, that have historically and presently, there's the Marxist uh, glasses, been discriminated against. So I understand that already in the law of England and Wales, people are making a fatuous argument uh, that gender identity was meant. It was either the living document idea or the original intent idea is claiming that in 2010 under Harriet Harman, uh, the, we, the UK enshrined gender expression and identity as a protected characteristic in law, but you would disagree? Well, we have um, gender reassignment. Um, this is, it's a minefield, Alex. It is an absolute minefield. I, I, I don't, there's only two explanations for this. One is that there is a deliberate um, attempt to create word salads um, by the by the subtle interplay of policies and law such that people start to forget which which is which you know where where, where does the policy start and the law end and vice versa um, and that is a deliberate sort of um, what, what what is the word where you you're, you're deliberately creating a kind of confusion uh, around what uh, can be thought and said and what what matters and what is protected and uh, or the other option is that there's just so many people involved in the in the process of creating policy and law uh, that we are the people we the people are saddled with um these various um, fantasies if you like um, that don't always speak to one another and make no sense when when read across each other, uh, that we end up being just similarly befuddled and we can't we can't do anything with it. I was just about to suggest befuddled myself for the latter of those possible strategies and for the first one, perhaps beclouded. Beclouded and befuddled sounds like um, a, a sort of Ella Fitzgerald song. <laughs> but uh, yes. There is a there is a beclouding that is potentially a deliberate strategy by political activists who want the law to, to mean what they want it to mean, and a befuddling which may be an accidental consequence of activists and professional drafters and respectable jurists in courts making interpretations of law and then you know the case law that follows from that. I mean, I believe that as an as an advocate who tries to grapple with what the law is saying. Well, constitutionally, we have to go to the intention of Parliament when drafting a particular statute. And, and it's now allowed to go to Hansard, isn't it? It used to be uh, yes. uh, prohibited in English courts to look at Hansard. You could yeah. only look at the explanatory notes submitted with the bill. Yes, which I think is a good thing because, you know, obviously, uh, as, as, as the zeitgeist drives cult cultural assumptions about what law says, um, the, the, the intention of Parliament may often be interpreted um, through the explanatory notes of the bill attached 
in ways which meet the cultural expectations of the moment. But if you go to Hansard, of course, you then see very often a quite clear understanding of what was being debated and why at the time. I, I remember the um, uh, ding dong I had with a, a lawyer at GCHQ when I talked about the will of parliament in an email to him uh, in regard to one of the uh, statutes framing GCHQ's uh, roles at law. And he got very shirty and said, the will of Parliament's no concern of yours. If you have any such questions, go to me. But it's incumbent on any uh, anyone in a statutory body who has, has duties coming from a statute to understand what the will of Parliament is, I would say. Later, I discovered that Dr. John Coleman, the Englishman in America, who's become a constitutionalist, well known for his book on the Committee of 300, uh, always made a point of this, that his tutors and mentors had given him really the open secret that in the American context, you go to the congressional record, particularly of the Senate, and for us, the House of Lords, to see what the wise heads were saying when the bill was being framed and put through the houses. I cannot, I cannot recommend that approach enough. I mean, it, it is a matter, it's a commonplace that, you know, as, as a matter of constitutional uh, principle, the highest authority is Parliament. And Parliament is to be understood in terms of legislation um, through its intentions when drafting. So if there are questions and debates about something, I do think Hansard is a good place to go. And I, I recommend that, that, you know, your audience do that. I mean, it's very easy to go onto the um, uh, parliamentary library website and, and, and look at any bill in, in, in debate and what people were saying about it. And it's often extremely revealing. Um, we are now at this point where we, we, we have this uh, concept of gender reassignment. And, you know, um, it is in the Equality Act and it's defined in a, in a strange way as, as, as um, you know, a process by which someone undergoes or chooses or proposes to undergo uh, sexual reassignment. The Equality Act 2010 is being misrepresented by the charity sector, by charlatans posing as educators, so that now trans or gender identity is treated as a protected characteristic under equality and anti-discrimination law. There is no such thing as trans or gender identity in law. There is gender reassignment, which is entirely different, and as Andrew also mentioned, a procedure available to persons of 18 and over. Schools have no business promoting the idea to minors under 18 that their healthy bodies need medical intervention and pretending that this is some sort of diktat of the Equality Act. And our bill makes that crystal clear. Secondly, we are going to sue the Department for Education. Bad Law Project is preparing a class action brought by parents who will for the time being have to remain anonymous due to the pathetic state of free speech in this so-called democracy and because of risks to their personal security and their children's well-being were their identities to be publicised. These are parents whose children have been encouraged at school to socially or medically transition at considerable cost to both the children's and the family's mental and physical well-being. The parents are seeking to bring a joint claim in negligence against the department for actively promoting gender identity in schools, which we will define as gender ideology, and for failing to act on foreseeable harms caused by said ideology, and for allowing schools, local authorities and charities to politically indoctrinate children and ignoring and dismissing complaints brought to their attention by suffering parents. So there you are, we've got, we've got a, a circular definition that gender reassignment is sex reassignment, where nobody knows whether gender and sex are the same or different, um, according to the cultural zeitgeist that we now inhabit. Now, I, I 
I understood in the UK uh, that there was a consultation that the government had with the people on whether or not gender self-ID should be lawful. Uh, because it wasn't lawful and it isn't lawful because the population made it quite clear in that consultation that they didn't agree with it and therefore we don't have it. And that was the debate that cost Nicola Sturgeon her, her, her career because she was insisting that, you know, anyone who says they're a woman is a woman and people can be sent, men can be sent to, to women's prisons uh, as women because they declare themselves women. And that was overwhelmingly rejected by the Scottish population. It was uh, encapsulated by one opponent in the memorable phrase, if you've got a willy, stay in Barlini. Yes. And I mean, you know, sometimes these are the best ways of, of, of summarising the issues. Um, now, we're not supposed to have gender self-ID. So the only way that we cannot have gender self-ID is by assuming that there is a, a process other than an oral declaration by which somebody is uh, recognised as the other sex or the other gender, however you want to put it. Uh, because if we have um, a, a transformation of the person through oral declaration, then we have gender self-ID. And to my best knowledge, uh, you know, that was rejected by the British people through the consultation pro process in 2018. Um, but of course, uh, it has now become uh, almost a sort of cultural, um, I would say, expectation uh, that we accept oral declarations as uh, indicators that someone has the protected characteristic. It's, it's the will of society taking over from the will of parliament. And I think the current generation of drafters, clerks, are admitting as much with that New Zealand explanatory note there. You know, historical experience. Uh, yeah. we, would, we would all agree this is the jolly decent thing to do, wouldn't we? Yes. And I would say it's the will of policy, perhaps, rather than the will of... Uh, what did you say? The will of people? Um, the will of society. The will of society, yes. Very different. Um, I would say it's the will of policy. Uh, you know, po posing as the will of society. Um, so policy measures are, you know, they're, they're distributed, and I'm sure it's the same in New Zealand, throughout the, 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 the workplace and, 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 and through all regulatory bodies and professional uh, uh, bodies and public sector and private companies. We have these EDI um, missives, which are policy directed, and they often, they often will say that gender identity is the protected characteristic and that gender is a protected characteristic and that gender is something that you, you, you feel and, and so therefore you, you, you tell people at work that you are this thing and then they have to accept it. Um, of course, that is contested whether they have to accept it because um, then we engage issues of, of compelled uh, speech and so on. And, um, and also obviously uh, with, with certain faith communities, you have doctrinal objections which have to be taken on board. But the, but the general zeitgeist is if someone says they feel this thing, then they are that thing. And then they threw their with, with a subtext of uh, why not indulge them after all they're fragile they're a delicate flower yeah and and the oral declaration which i think that this is i think britain did reject in 2018 the oral declaration as the the mechanism by which someone acquires a protected characteristic called gender reassignment that which was rejected i think it is still technically rejected uh, in british society hence the debates about sports and prisons uh, in particular, not to not to mention things like domestic violence shelters and so on, or women's wards in hospitals and so on and so forth. And there is this, you know, I would say fairly robust, healthy debate between so-called gender critical uh, uh, people on one side and, and and trans activists or lobbyists for, for 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 transgender rights on the other side. And we have this, you know, this debate that's going on, and it seems very healthy. It seems very robust. 
And the, the position of the gender criticals is that self-ID is not okay because you get men going into prisons, women's prisons, you get men going into women's spaces. But with schools, because there have been individual children who have expressed a particular uh, desire to be considered as other than they are gender-wise or sex-wise, and because there have been proceedings issues, sometimes through the, through, through the courts with the, with the participation of, of, of NHS England, and there has to be a judicial assessment on the age of the child and how the child is feeling and what the appropriate uh, procedures to be, uh, you know, to, to, to be approved by the court. Because there has been the use of the protected characteristic of gender reassignment to such children, we are now being told that all children who orally self-declare at school have the protected characteristic of gender reassignment, irrespective of age. And again, it goes back to what I say about how you have some sort of um, exceptional scenario, um, you know, a 15 or 16 year old boy who says he wants to have gender reassignment surgery and wants to you know, take certain drugs um, or, you know, whatever. There's, there's a, a few cases with individual children uh, involved and the parents and the medical experts. But, but school policy is now being interpreted to mean that uh, the oral declaration of a child is the mechanism by which they acquire the protected characteristic of gender reassignment. And that will be something that is not questioned by anybody, anyone on any side of the argument. Whereas if an adult man goes into an adult woman's prison, all hell breaks loose because we are still having the debate about whether gender self-ID is lawful, but we are treating that debate as only applicable in the adult world. And if we don't address that, that lacuna, that, that deficit, uh, whereby we've simply abandoned children uh, to, to, the, to the, the vagaries of EDI policy on, on school premises, whereby children are being told, you know, if, you're, if that boy wants to go to the girls' toilets, if that boy says he's a girl, then he's a girl. And, and, and for the purposes of the school, we have to treat him as having the protected characteristic of gender reassignment, which means that as a matter of law, he is a transsexual, that boy whether he's seven or five, he's a transsexual at law. If he, has, if he has acquired the protected characteristic of gender reassignment through oral declaration, then on some reading of the Equality Act, you could say that boy or that girl at five or seven are transsexuals, which is clearly utterly at odds with the intentions of parliament when they were drafting both the Gender Recognition Act 2004 which makes uh, gender recognition a procedure available to persons of 18 and over, and when they were drafting the Equality Act in 2010, which talks about gender reassignment as the reassignment of sex, and the you know the 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 the, the, the acquisition of a now outdated term whereby you become a transsexual in law that clearly had no I, there was no intention to include all sorts of children at primary school age upwards. In that, in, that, uh, in that drafting, but there we are, We're, here we are. So that is, I think, why the Bad Law Project was founded is because this is, this is in, indicative of, 
of general patterns in society whereby policy and the zeitgeist driven by a sort of political um, activist agenda manages to re redefine the, the, the letter of the law and almost capture the um, intentions of parliament with it and in order to totally rewrite what the law was for, what it was about, why it was drafted in the first place and simply apply it in the way they would like to see. And what they would like to see is that children have no um, age appropriate considerations when being taught or treated by society for any matter of issues. We are increasingly forbidden from raising uh, the young age of a child as a possible obstacle to certain procedures being imposed on that child. In fact, it is becoming vulgar to even raise that question. And you see this on, on social media when they talk about the pearl clutchers who are uh, their, their, their mantra is what about the children, protect the children, as if it's a vulgar um, attribute of an adult person to actually uh, be concerned about children's welfare precisely because children are young. And or in the words of Mary Black, outgoing MP for the Scottish National Party, if you don't agree with my views on sexuality, you are a 50-year-old Karen. Well, yeah. Dr. Anna Lukvi, we really have run out of time, so what I will do to wrap up is read your stalwart uh, definition, given very spontaneously off the cuff of the rule of law, better than many which we were trying to wade through in the most recent episode in our Dissident's Guide to the Constitution podcast series, which will be linked below the, uh, the interview. Uh, here you go when, when pressed, you say that in a democratic society that is governed constitutionally by the basic principle of the rule of law, that principle is that the law should be clear and accessible to all and nobody's above the law that's the lord denning bit be you never so high the law is above you and that the government must uphold the law and primarily that the law should not be administered or drafted as you've just said in any arbitrary way and you then say that that's undone by the third sector which sounds fluffy but it's the rockefellers of this world as you've said um so anyone who wishes to contribute to your excellent work with the Bad Law Project, uh, I think it was named tongue-in-cheek in a, in a, in a repartee to uh, the Good Law Project with Jolion Moim, but uh, yes. maybe not. Oh, it was. Um, that, that donation link will also be below this uh, interview. I do like uh, how democracy3.org, when they reported on your um, campaign, uh, said, please do not donate no more than you can afford. That's a very gracious yes, and, line and to take. And that money is not for the bad law project, nor is it to cover the bad law um, uh, legal side of, 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 of any costs are incurred as a result of the case being brought. That is to protect the parents against adverse costs should they lose the case. So just to be very clear, that is what the money is being gathered for. It's to protect the costs at risks, uh, protect the parents against cost risks rather than uh, funding some, some, some nebulous entity called the bad law project. That's, that's important. And if you like what you've heard today, Dr. Anna Lutfi is the host of a legal podcast called The Verdict. What platforms can that be found on? Well, actually, The Verdict is, um, I'm not doing that anymore. That is um, a, a, a podcast that I did do um, um, a while back when I, when I was um, interviewing people in academia mainly. But I have a podcast called The Bad Law Show, which can be found on the Reclaim the Media um, YouTube channel. 
Uh, I've got a very interesting uh, conversation which I held yesterday for a long form conversation with Charles Mallet, an ex-police officer, about the meaning of the phrase bad law, which I think your, your, your viewers might and listeners might enjoy. And Charles is a much valued regular contributor to UK Column as That's well. Right. So we're all finding each other somehow, aren't we, Anna? Yeah, Thank you very are. much for your time today. And I suspect we'll be talking to you again, but uh, more power to your elbow in bringing this case against the Department for Education. Thank you very much. On behalf of the parents, we will need all the power that we can get. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. And, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Be well.